The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamilgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Jennifer Hardall. She is an environmental health scientist, food systems analyst, and she's done her postdoctoral research fellowship at Stanford University. She has over 15 years of experience working in the field of occupational and environmental health. She received her master's and doctoral degrees from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. I happened to hear Dr. Hartle speak at the Children's Environmental Health Network Conference in Austin, Texas in February of 2015. Her topic was bisphenol A, or BPA, and its presence in school meals. And I thought this is important information for parents to know, for researchers to know, for dietitians to know, and so I wanted her to be my guest. So Dr. Hartle, welcome. Thank you for having me, Melinda. Well, I was so impressed with your presentation. It took a great deal of research and skill to get at the numbers you did and look at this topic. So let's just start off with a review. Not everybody has heard of BPA or bisphenol A. Why don't you tell us what it is? So BPA or bisphenol A, it's an industrial chemical, and it's widely used in two major applications. One is to make polycarbonate plastic. And so that's the hard, clear plastic that we often see for food storage vessels. And then also it's used for epoxy resins. And so it's, it's a building block for both of these materials. And the epoxy lining is what's on the inside of our metal canned food and beverages. So if I'm recalling correctly, this polycarbonate plastic That's what we used to see baby bottles made of, but if I understand correctly, that use has been banned. Is that right? Yes. So there's just been a few bans of BPA, and so in 2012, the FDA removed the approval for use of BPA in baby bottles and in sippy cups, and now they've also removed the approval of use of BPA for use in infant formula packaging, and that was in 2013. Okay, and because that used to be a lining in the cans, is that right? Yes. Okay. Now, when we talk about polycarbonate plastic, I also want to get my head around where we might find this in our kitchens. And if I remember correctly, sports bottles used to be made of this product. Is that right? And are they still? Yes, that is definitely a common application of polycarbonate plastic, so those hard, clear plastic bottles. So now it's not by regulation, but by consumer demand that BPA is pretty much out of those bottles. If you buy one new from the store, it will probably be labeled BPA-free. So those bottles, then they are made from, they're still polycarbonate plastic, but instead of using BPA, as the building block for that kind of plastic, 
there's an alternative. It's probably a BPS or a BPF. Okay, and if I remember from our brief conversation at your poster session, we talked a little bit about some of these substitutes, and they're not really tested for safety, or let's just say that we've got some questions about the safety of those substitutes. Is that right? I would definitely agree with that. It's taken many, many years for the scientific community to really get lots of data on BPA, and the switch over to the alternatives, the other bisphenol products, it happened very quickly. And so the same process is happening again now that scientists are looking at these materials, they're testing them, and they're testing them out in different animal studies, and they're finding a lot of adverse health effects of these alternatives as well. Okay. So we need to understand where these adverse health effects are coming from. What is the problem with this chemical? So the main problem with BPA and its alternatives is its endocrine-disrupting properties. So its ability to disrupt how your hormones would normally act in your body. It's It's an additional hormone into your system. And so it can cause a range of adverse health effects and Most of the data, the bulk of the data are in animal studies, but there are also epidemiological studies or human studies that have been conducted with BPA. And some of the health effects to mention are how it can be associated with changes in rates of diabetes and obesity and cardiovascular disease, as well as in rates of ADHD. And there are definitely some other adverse health effects that have been associated with human data now. Mm -hmm. Well, I did some research on some websites that you had told me were good resources for more consumer information, and those two websites are the Environmental Working Group and the Natural Resources Defense Council. And what really alarmed me and has been a concern of mine, and I know yours too, is that BPA can mimic the female hormone estrogen. And I'm assuming that that's really why and how it causes problems in biological systems. Am I right? Yes. So what is happening is as they can mimic estrogen, then the body is believing that it should respond to extra doses of estrogen in their body. And so the the normal actions of the system is, being changed by this environmental influence, this environmental chemical. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that in addition to cans of foods and beverages, and I just want to throw out there things like soup, canned beans, you know, things that we typically have in our pantries, as well as the dental sealants. I was really surprised to read that because, of course, parents at least – Of my age, when our children were young, we were told, get your children's teeth sealed. This is great. It's going to prevent cavities. And then I learned later, oh, my gosh, these sealants could be emitting BPA. Right. That's correct. They are in dental sealants. And so when I've had to make the choice of whether or not to uh, use dental sealants on my children, I asked them, does it contain BPA? They researched it and said, no, they don't contain BPA anymore. Mm. But what I didn't know is, or in certain companies, that is, I don't know if that's across the board. And I didn't know if there were what 
alternatives are being used instead, too. It's that same question of has the substitute or the alternate material, is that also a problem? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in my own experience, my dentist wasn't even aware of the risk or harm. And so I think it's important that we as consumers, when we take our children to the dentist, and this is just a side note, we're going to get to your research, I promise, <laughs> that we are aware of what we're doing and bring as much data as we can. And I probably should talk to some dentists to see if the American Dental Association has any policies on this. But just so our listeners know, there are multiple routes of exposure to this chemical. And we're going to get back to talking about food sources. So tell me, before we jump into your research on school food, which I think is really critical, how did you become interested in this? So the interest started while I was completing my doctoral degree and as an environmental health scientist, and my job for many years was to specifically just look at exposures to chemicals and see how it affects human health. And I'm good at looking at the ways that chemicals make their way into people's bodies and, and from what products they come from. And so I was aware that BPA was found in baby bottles and sippy cups. And then one day in a journal club, we were discussing an article, and what it was talking about was that the main exposure for children and adults, so after you've grown out of the baby bottle and sippy cup stage, the main exposure to BPA was from canned food. And that was the first time I had heard about that as a main source of exposure to BPA. And so from that point on, I really start to explore, wait a second, if we're really worried about BPA in baby bottles and in sippy cups so much that consumers have demanded that it's taken out and we refuse to buy those products, how come it's still in canned soups and all the other canned products and we're not having the same consumer demand to get it out and the quick replacement by all of the companies to a safer alternative? Mm-hmm. So tell me something. What did we line our cans with before BPA? So my understanding is that before BPA, the predecessor to it were plant-based resins. And the only reason I know that is because some of the companies that have moved to alternative linings, BPA-free linings, they say on their websites that they're using these other linings. And I've also heard, though, that the reason that canyon manufacturers moved away from these plant-based resins was because it didn't display all of the properties they wanted. The lining of the cans are used to make sure that the food taste is preserved and the color, and also if you're dent your can, that nothing like botulism or another microorganism is introduced into the can So it it really, they want a flexible lining. Mm, Interesting. I guess everything's a trade-off in our society, but I think that in light of the fact that these chemicals have estrogen-mimicking effects, I think I would be looking for alternative ways to package my food. So let's talk about some at-risk populations. So you looked at what populations typically eat a lot of canned foods, and you're right school lunches, 
And also I was thinking about whenever we have a canned food drive, so for people frequenting food pantries or food banks that have these big food drives, we see a lot of low-income people getting higher exposures to this compound. Yes, so that was one of my big concerns. When I found out that in older children and adults, the biggest source of BPA was from canned foods, I immediately started thinking of what population eats the most canned foods and also who doesn't have a choice of not eating canned foods if the foods that they have access to or the foods they can afford are canned foods. This is a food system-wide problem. And so that's when I started really thinking about that aspect of BPA exposure. And then also I started reading more And there's research showing that the highest BPA exposures are for, like this is the amount of exposure to BPA you have for your body weight. The highest levels are in infants and children. And then also, there's also some research that has shown that families that are food insecure do have higher levels of BPA in their body. So putting that all together... I really got interested in setting school meals and looking at a population that a big majority of the children that are receiving these school meals are getting it at a free and reduced price. So they are low-income population, so they could be having these packaged school meals during the day, and then maybe a source of food in the evening and the weekends could be food from a food pantry that a lot of times because of perishability reasons, might be coming in packages like cans. Mm -hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned in to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Jennifer Hartle, an environmental health scientist, food systems analyst, and postdoctoral research fellow at Stanford University. Her research is looking at BPA, or bisphenol A, an estrogen-mimicking compound that we typically find in canned foods. Well, let's jump into your research now with school meals, both breakfast and lunch. And how did you determine the quantities of BPA that might be in school meals and the levels at which children might be exposed? So when I started this project, I thought, this is a very simple modeling exercise. I will find out what kinds of food the children eat, how much of the food they eat every day. And then there's lots of published data on BPA and the levels of BPA you can find in certain food products. And I thought it would be kind of a, not a too complicated of a task. But the challenge was when I went to look into the data to find out what kinds of foods and what kinds of food packaging that school meals were coming in, I couldn't find that data. So that was my challenge, and that's where I started. And I started with going out and visiting schools, talking to food service directors, and even having a nationwide survey of food service directors to find out what are the most common foods served in schools and what kind of packaging, what kind of food preparation is taking place in the schools. And so that was my starting point so I could use some 
real concrete data on what are the foods, where do we start from, and then go work from there. So my models were based on information that I collected in the field, and then I used more of the techniques of an environmental health scientist to model how much BPA in food you could be exposed to. And what did you find? So, you know, it depends on how you look at it as to how alarmed you might be. I was alarmed because I've read lots and lots of papers and have seen from animal studies on what levels it takes to be exposed to BPA and have some toxicity. So the levels I found in my I had risk categories depending on how you package the food. So if you had a very typical school meal and there was packaging present, so the foods came from packaged plastic or from soup cans, there are levels of BPA in those modeled doses that are above the threshold of animal toxicity from published data. If you look at it from another perspective, though, the U.S. government has issued a reference dose or an RFT that says that a certain level, it happens to be 50 micrograms per kilogram body weight day, and that says that's the safe dose you can be exposed to every day, and that's what our public policies are based on. So in comparison to that, the doses I modeled were below that, but they were around, instead of around the 50 microgram range, my highest doses were around 1 which I think is it's pretty close in there. There's not a lot of safety built into that number. And so I think it's definitely a, a concerning a level that I found. Mm-hmm. What I thought was interesting, too, from your data, and I want to share your concern. I, when I heard your presentation, I thought, this is alarming, and we need to let consumers know. But the EU has changed their safety tolerance level. And they've lowered it from 50 micrograms per day to four. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. They just did that earlier this year. And so now if you compare the levels of the meals that I looked at, there were about one microgram per kilogram body weight day. And just compare that now to the new EU standard set by the ESSA at four, then we're really too close for comfort, I think. And that, in my modeling, is only for one meal. So it could be a one lunch. And so that doesn't take into account all of the other sources of BPA you could be exposed to during the day, from your breakfast, from your snacks, your dinner. So it's just a, a modeling of one meal, and that could be up to one microgram per kilogram body weight day. But I think that's very close to the standards that they're holding people to in the EU. This is so interesting to me because if I took my notes correctly, something else that I thought you said was that the adverse health effects, at least in animal models, show that a level of 0.025 micrograms per kilogram per day are going to have adverse biological health effects. Is that correct? Yes. So there actually are are a small handful of studies at that level and then a whole other range of ones very close to that level where animal toxicity has happened at those low levels, at those low doses. 
but the current RFD or the reference doses are not based on that, those more recent studies. It's based on data that was completed in 1982, and the reference dose was set in 1988. So, wow. yes, there's more data, and there are lower levels showing that lower doses of exposure to BPA can cause adverse health effects. And do you recall if the data that the 1988 limits were used to set, if that data was independent research or industry research? You know, I'm not exactly sure. Okay. Who, the source, it's, it's government-funded research, and I don't think that the problem is with who conducted that research and as to why they have those levels. It's more on how toxicology tests are established and at, at what doses. So there, I think, are pre-prescribed dose levels that you expose your animals to in order to get your data. And so exposures to low doses are not even in the framework for the toxicology testing. Sure. And I think, too, if I understand the way endocrine disruptors work, what we're finding now with more sensitive measuring uh, devices is that the dose doesn't necessarily make the poison. You know, we used to think that. But with these particular compounds, sometimes the lower dose is more detrimental or more biologically active than some of the higher doses. Yes, and I, I agree. And that is part of the problem why there needs to be reform in how you, we do the toxicology testing and set our public policies, our public health policies, for endocrine disrupting chemicals, since they display different ways of affecting the body, they can have these low-dose effects. And, and so I think that's a, a really good reason why the framework for toxicology testing needs to be looked at again, especially for this class of chemicals. Right. Well, I don't know of how much you've followed up with individual school districts, but the first thing, you know, as a parent that comes to mind is some of these health and wellness policies that schools are putting into place. And I remember at the Children's Environmental Health Network conference, you made a really good point, and that was that it would be really great to shift our food buying habits from the canned processed foods over to the fresh and frozen foods. And I wonder, has there been any communication between the scientists and some of these health and wellness policies? And if any of these policy councils have decided, you know, we really want to try to phase out canned food because of the presence of BPA? I think that the main impetus for the change that we are slowly seeing and in some districts more quickly seeing our shift over to more fresh foods comes more from the health basis, uh, from looking at the nutrients. And I don't see, or I haven't seen yet, I would love to see more policies that are looking at the environmental health exposure as part of the reasons why you're basing your nutrition policy. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think that that's really one of the big values of your research is that listeners can take this new information 
and fold it into existing wellness policy and say, you know what, we have another really important reason why we should be having more farm-to-school programs, on-site gardens, more fresh and frozen food, and getting away from the canned food. And, you know, on that note, I have to add that as a dietitian, of course, I go to my annual conferences, and the Grocery Manufacturers Association has been very vocal in saying, oh, not to worry about these canned foods, they're totally fine. I would really like to see the industry start to change their tune based on excellent research like yours. That would be great. I would love to see that my research is pushing policy to improve the food choices that are out there and to reduce the food packaging. I think that a way to, instead of our usual tact of researching and uh, regulating chemical by chemical, it would be wonderful if we can just come from the opposite angle and say, well, let's just have our fresh fruits and vegetables that haven't been processed. We haven't added any chemicals that may or may not have been uh, researched and investigated thoroughly into our food system and keep it from that way instead of further engineering foods to meet nutritional requirements, which is what happened a lot with the new nutrition standards when they came in. They just reformulated a lot of the existing products that are out there. Yeah. Well, you know, we just have a minute left, and I want to give you a chance to share anything from your research that I may not have helped bring forth. What would you like our listeners to know? I just, I think in looking at the school meal specifically, it's really, I would love any of the listeners out there that are parents to take a look at what the school lunches are um, what they're packaged in and ask some questions uh, because when I went in to look at these school meals, I was just looking, I thought, oh, the only problem was canned food. But then I went in and throughout the whole process, I realized, wait a second, all of this food is packaged in some form of plastic with the exception of sometimes you'll have a whole apple or a whole orange or a whole banana, but otherwise everything has started in plastic. So maybe the problem isn't just the concern with BPA coming from the canned, just a a food can, but wait a second, are there other chemicals possibly out there or BPA that has found its way into these other plastic and processed foods? And that's what I was very concerned with at the end. That was kind of my bigger take-home message from all of my researches. Wait a second, we don't know enough about the foods that we have in these school meals and what could be leaching from just the plastic packaging. So it's all of our BPA research is great, but to have a broader look at all of the packaging that we're exposing our children to, it would be something that that people, these listeners should go out and, and investigate. Well, Dr. Hartle, I want to thank you so much for your time today, and I want to make sure that we'll get websites listed with this recording so that our listeners will know where to go to get more information. Again, that's the Environmental Working Group as well as the... The Natural uh, Resources Defense Council. The Natural Resources Defense Council. Thank you very much. In summary, I want to remind our listeners that we have been speaking with Dr. Jennifer Hartle. She's an environmental health scientist, food systems analyst, and 
postdoctoral research fellow at Stanford University. I heard her speak at the Children's Environmental Health Network Conference in Austin, Texas in February, and her research on BPA in school meals was extremely interesting. So I want to thank you for sharing that with us. And in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Dr. Hartle. Thank you, Melinda, for having me.